to be looking at First Chronicles. Or I don't know, am I on? Okay. First Chronicles chapter 4 is where we are today. Welcome to our friends in Robbinsville as well, and certainly to each of you that are here. Uh, in First Chronicles chapter 4, we come across additional uh, genealogies or descriptions and names listed by the author, likely Ezra, and remember, beginning in, the, in chapter 4, verse 1, we are at the place where Ezra is describing not just a list of people one after the other, this guy gave birth to this guy to this guy, but now he is in the place where he's listing key clan leaders, and maybe their offspring or their children a few generations uh, down, for the purpose of establishing where each of the tribes and each of the clan leaders of those tribes settled in the land prior to be taken off into captivity. Remember, this book is written somewhere in the 400 B.C. range. And this is the time period in which the children of Israel and Judah are returning from captivity in Babylon, where they had been for some 70 years, uh, and they're making their way back to what uh, used to be known as, or we would call, the Promised Land. Also important for you to be reminded that many of these people that are making this trip back, quote-unquote, had never been to the Promised Land before. They are the children or the grandchildren or maybe even the great-grandchildren of people who had previously lived there. So where are you going to go? What are you going to do? It, it really reminds me in many ways of the period following the Holocaust in Europe when many of these uh, Jews were coming out of the concentration camps and they were going back to their communities, whether it be in Poland or Germany and Austria or somewhere else, and they'd come back to this area that was completely destroyed. And ha almost all of their family members had been killed and their city lied in ruins. And how many of them decided, you know what, if we're going to start over, why don't we start over in a place uh, that we can call our own? And how many of those Jews following the Holocaust migrated as Zionists to the land of Israel? And so pretty similar uh, concept or idea that we're looking at here. You have these Jews uh, that are returning from captivity and they're making their way back to the Promised Land. Now when we were together last week, we looked at the descendants of Judah. Now, it's unusual for Judah to be listed first because Judah was not the, the elder or, or the oldest of the sons of Israel. Remember, Israel had 12 sons. His firstborn son was a fellow by the name of Reuben. So one would expect that Reuben would be listed first. But as we're going to talk about today, we'll see that some things happened in Reuben's life which sort of took away his privilege as the firstborn son. And Judah as we're going to see tonight in our Life of Joseph study, Judah rose up as a key figure in uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judah, as we know, would become uh, the, the tribe in which the kings of uh, Judah and Israel would come from, uh, where David is of the line of Judah. And so we looked at them last week, and we, we shared with you on a map where they were located. Now today, we're going to be looking at, uh, start our look at the tribes of Simeon. Now, we have a slide here that lists for us the descendants of Simeon. And if you take a look on that slide uh, that should be up on the screen, what you will notice is that 
Simeon is sort of in the midst of the tribe of Judah. They are down in the southern portion of the land of Judah where uh, they will begin. That's where the land was allotted to them. Slide number two will show you where Judah was. You can see that just to the side of them there and, and sort of surrounding them. And this is the location of the cities and the land that Ezra is describing in these next 15 verses or so. So let me read to you, beginning in verse 24. It says, Now the sons of Simeon, Nemuel, Jamin, Jarib, Zerah, Shaul, Shalom was his son, Mibsam his son, Mishma his son, and the sons of Mishma, Hamuel, Zakur, and Shimei, each of their sons. Now Shimei had 16 sons and six daughters, but his brothers did not have many children, nor did all their clan multiply like the men of Judah. And they lived in Beersheba, Moladah, Hazar Shual, Bilha, Ezim, Tolad, Bethuel, Horma, Ziklag, Beth Markaboth. These are all names of cities. And again, in our culture, we might, if I just started rattling off to you towns around here, they lived in West Windsor and they lived in Robbinsville and they lived in Trenton and in Allentown, your mind would immediately know. It says, these were their cities until David reigned. And their villages were Itam, Ain, Riman, Token, and Ashian, five cities, along with all their villages that were around these cities as far as Baal. These were their settlements, and they kept a genealogical record. Now, Mishabab, Jam, Jamlech, Josah, the son of Amaziah, Joel, Jehu, the son of Joshabiah, the son of Sariah, son of Aziel, Elanai, Jacobah, Jeshohiah, Asaiah, Adiel, Jezmael. I'm sure half of these are wrong, but I'll throw in a, a rolling R every now and then so you think I know what I'm talking about. Uh, Benaiah, Ziza, the son of Shifi, son of Alan, son of Jediah, son of Shimri, son of Shemaiah. These mentioned by name were princes in their clans, and their father's houses increased greatly. They journeyed to the entrance of Gedur, to the east side of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks, where they found rich, good pasture. And the land was very broad, quiet, and peaceful. For the former inhabitants there belonged to Ham. Remember one of Noah's sons, Ham? These registered by name came in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And they destroyed their tents and the Meunites who were found there. And they marked them for destruction to this day. And they settled in their place because there was pasture there for their flocks. And some of them, 500 men of the Simeonites, they went to Mount Seir, having as their leaders Pelatiah, Neriah, Rephiah, and Uzael the sons of Ishi, and they defeated the remnant of the Amalekites who had escaped, and they have lived there to this day. And so, as we mentioned, we be, we're looking at the tribe of Simeon. Now, the first verse that I'd like to draw your attention to is found in verse 31. And there in verse 31, it says, these were their cities until David reigned. Now, the tribe of Simeon, initially, the land that was allotted to them was in the southern portion of the rectangle of Israel. Remember, if you take Israel convert it to a rectangle, and then draw a line right between the two of them. The ten northern tribes would be on the top of the rectangle. The two southern tribes would be down the bottom. The two southern tribes, which we call Judah, are made up primarily of Judah and Benjamin. The ten tribes to the north, are, made, are uh, what we call Israel, are made up of the remaining tribes. Now, Simeon initially is down in the south. But here, as we see for an example, it says two things that we read. One of them these were their cities until David reigned. Now remember when David, who is of the tribe of Judah, became king, the Judites began to increasingly acquire more and more land that previously had belonged to the Simeonites. Secondly, as you look a little bit further down, it talks about how they came to the edge of their borderland 
and they realized they didn't have enough uh, pasture land for their flocks. And so they began to conquer some of uh, the neighboring areas that were there that the Amorites were possessing. And so essentially what occurs is the Simeonites begin in this place, but begin to migrate uh, and move and eventually make their way to the northern portion of the nation of Israel. So now I want to draw your attention, please, to uh, verse 39. Go ahead and take a look. Verse 39 says, Now they journeyed to the entrance of Gedur, to the east side of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks, where they found rich, good pasture, and the land was very broad, quiet, and peaceful, for the former inhabitants there belonged to Ham. Now the Simeonites come to the edge of their inheritance, and it's as if they they come to like an invisible fence. Like some of us have dogs that have those invisible fences, and the rest of us stand on the outside and make fun of them or whatever. And so this poor dog, or the Simeonites in this case, they come running up to the edge of this invisible fence, and that's where their border ends. But yet, something interesting is going on inside of them, because inside of them there's sort of this sense of all of that land there is being possessed by the enemy, but we feel God is calling us to go and to possess that land. And I think there's a valuable lesson as what's going on in the hearts of these Simeonites that can be similar for what is going on in the hearts of each of us. What I have come to discover in my faith, in my journey with the Lord, and particularly as I've been seeking to serve the Lord, long before I became a pastor, I was convinced that as a follower of Christ, the Lord has put me on this earth, in this congregation, in this community, wherever that community, wherever that congregation was at the time, I was convinced that God had me here for a purpose. And I believe the exact same thing about each one of us that sits here. That God plants us in the places that he does for a reason. That God wants to work through each one of us. That God wants to use each one of us. And that all of us, as as followers of Christ, we are part of that process. Some of us are planting. Some of us are watering. And as Paul says, the Lord is the one that is bringing about the increase. So incredibly valuable. But one of the things that I've discovered in my walk with the Lord as I'm seeking to serve him is that he would bring me sort of to a place where a burden would begin to develop, where I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing. I'm content with where God would have me. I'm trying to serve him in humility and all these sorts of things. And yet there's a sense that the Lord would have me go on to the next step. And so maybe I'm a helper in a particular ministry. But then there's this sense say, hey, I'll do this for the rest of my life if that's what God will have me to do. But I have this feeling, I have this leading that God would have me step out and maybe start my own home fellowship. No longer be a helper, but expand the work and be a leader in one of the home fellowships. Or that God is kind of bringing me to that next place where he says, you know what, you've been volunteering, uh, setting up chairs for really long, and that is great. But there's lots of guys now and gals that are coming alongside of you and doing it. Maybe now it's time for you to go a step further. And to be the guy that hands out the bulletins and gives a smile to someone. And so there's sort of this burden that comes from within. I like to refer to it as sort of a godly discontent. It's not a discontent from the sense of, man, I'm better than this. I shouldn't be here. But it's this leading of the Spirit that is working in our lives. And we come to the edge of our border, and then all of a sudden God is saying, you know what, you see that land over there? Just imagine what could happen if we possess that land. Just imagine. And here the Simeonites, they come to the edge of the land and God is beginning to reveal to them a vision and they catch a hold of that. It's a valuable lesson for us that may feel restricted in life. Some of us feel restricted at work. And the easy thing would continue to stay in this particular level 
and say, you know what, I'm not going to do the necessary work that is required to move to that next level because this is simple, this is easy, there's no trouble for me. Other people that you watch and you observe, you see they're incredibly burdened and they're driven to move to that next level, not for their own glory, not necessarily for great amounts of money or whatever it may be, but simply because they want to be fulfilled in what it is that God is calling them to do. Some of us in ministry, and I think all of us, and I certainly hope, that all of us in our walk with Christ are continually coming to the edge of our border, to that invisible fence. And God is revealing to us and saying, you know what, I want to take your prayer life further. You know what, I want to take your study, your personal study of the word further. You know, I want to take this uh, tendency for you to look out for yourself, and number one, and I want to bring you to the place where it becomes a joy to serve other people, and so on and so forth. God wants to continually grow us. Some of us, we may get to that place and we say, oh well, I guess this is all that God has for me. Others of us say, but yet I still have this desire and I think God wants to move me on. I would encourage you, if God is prompting, get a hold of his vision and take the necessary steps to move forward and let God grow you and challenge you and, grow and work in you as he did in the Simeonites here and expanded their land. Now as we move on to chapter 5, we are introduced to the Reubenites. And if you look at verse 1, it says, Now the sons of Reuben... The firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Now, much of those verses there, I think I read two or three verses, much of those are parenthetical. They're not the point of this particular place in the scripture here again we're being introduced to the tribe of reuben and so we have the slide there that shows where the reubenites settled and the reubenites as you can see are located just to the east of the jordan river there not too far away from the dead sea and this is the place that they would land then we have this parenthesis and it's important for us to go back and talk about this parenthesis because it has a significant impact about where they're going to land and the influence that they're going to have now, the parenthesis, it reads, it says that he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. Now, the story that we are reading about here mentions the firstborn and the right of the firstborn. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, or excuse me, chapter 21, it says that when a, a man is going to pass on his inheritance to his children, it says this in the instructions, that he shall acknowledge the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength, and the right of the firstborn is his. In the culture in which they lived, when the patriarch, the senior uh, male, passed on the scene, the new leader of the clan, the new patriarch of uh, the family, would be the firstborn son. And he would become the financial leader of the clan of people, the brothers and all that, and their wives and their children, and he would also become the spiritual leader of those people as well. But as we see in this particular passage here, Reuben forfeited those special privileges and those special opportunities, not just to be doubly wealthy as everyone else, but also to be the spiritual leader of the, the group of people, the Israelites. And he forfeited that. And he forfeited it over, we read in Genesis chapter 35, one small verse found in Genesis 35 that tells us he forfeited it all over a girl or a woman. I'm not blaming women here necessarily. Honestly, what I'm doing is I'm blaming Reuben for this. 
the verse reads, While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, Israel, you may recall, was married uh, initially to a woman by the name of Leah. He didn't really want to marry Leah. Uh, he got tricked by Leah's father. He really wanted to marry Leah's younger sister, Rachel. Uh, night, she's wearing a veil, all this sort of stuff. He wakes up in the morning. He's like, who are you? And she says, I'm Leah. And in our culture, firstborn daughter gets married first. And he's like, yeah, but you're not, you're ugly. You're not as pretty as Rachel. I wanted Rachel or whatever. And so he comes out and he finds a dad. He said, what's the big idea? And he says, tell you what, no big deal. He said, said, just work another seven years and I'll give you Rachel as well. And it says that those days went by like nothing because he loved Rachel. So now there's Leah and there's Rachel. Uh, The story is a long story. Come tonight, uh, read the Bible study or be at the Bible study um, that we're going to share about this. But the general idea is there's a competition between Bilhah, or excuse me, between Leah and Rachel. Who's going to have more kids and be the better wife, whatever it may be? And so uh, Leah's on fire. Four kids, bang, 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 and bang. She's having them, and everything is going out great, and the Lord is with us, and so on. Now Rachel gets upset, realizes she can't have any kids, so she said, comes up with this idea, much like we saw previously with Abraham and Hagar, she says, take my concubine, go into her, she'll get pregnant and we'll raise it as her own. And this way, I, Rachel, will have a kid of our own as well. And so here the dad is like, okay, sounds like a reasonable idea. So he does that. Uh, They have some kids that are uh, conceived as a result of that. Then Leah realizes, I've stopped having kids. This is terrible. He's going to despise me or whatever. So he says, go to my my concubine and have kids with her. That's uh, this lady Bilhah here. Uh, I think, or Zilpah, I switch it up. Bilhah is Rachel, Zilpah is uh, Leah's. And so he goes into her, she conceives, and they have kids. And then Leah finally buys the husband with his son's mandrakes, her son's mandrakes, and he says, I bought you, you have to come to my tent tonight. And she conceives again. So all these kids are being produced through this process, and poor Rachel hasn't had any kids. And eventually, in the end, Rachel does conceive, and she gives birth to Joseph, and she gives birth to Benjamin. It's crazy. Uh, this whole story, it's Jerry Springer, you know, that is going on here. Now, time goes on, and here's Reuben, 30 years old, 40 years old, whatever it may be. He's, he's not like five. He's an older adult now, and he sees his father's concubine, Rachel's handmaid, that was given to Israel to have kids with, and he decides that he wants her so much that he doesn't care what is appropriate. He doesn't care what is right. He doesn't care how it's going to defile his father's couch and all this sort of stuff that it's referred to there. And he takes that woman and he has relations with her. And as you can read in the passage that we saw there, it said, and Israel heard of it. Now, there's no mention that Israel did anything at that time. Just sort of a, mm -hmm, just kind of took notice of it and figured I'll take care of this at another time. No problem. Well, the other time that he takes care of it is found in Genesis chapter 49. Now, the context of Genesis chapter 49 is that Israel has become an old man. If my son was here, he would tell you his age because he remembers ages and things like that. I forget exactly, but I'm I'm pretty sure he was 147. And he's on his deathbed there, and he's laying there on that deathbed, and he calls together his sons, uh, these 12 sons. And he begins to lay his hands on each one of them, unable to get up, unable to kind of move around, but he can put his hand on. I suspect he kind of reaches over and holds sort of their forearm. And he begins to pronounce a blessing on each one of them. When he comes to, and would you turn there, Genesis chapter 49, please? And as you can see in Genesis chapter 49, and I know some of you are still turning there, 
But in verse 5, he addresses Simeon and Levi. In verse 8, he addresses Judah. Verse 13, Zebulun. Verse 14, Issachar. 16, Dan. Verse 19 and 20, you have Gad and then Asher. In verse 21, Naphtali. And in verse 22, Joseph. And then finally down in verse 27, his youngest son is that fellow by the name of Benjamin. Now the verse, each one of those are blessings, essentially. It's sort of a description of the type of person that each one of those kids were or are. And then it's sort of a blessing on his offspring and the type of tribe that they're going to become. But when you look at verse 3 and 4, you read the quote-unquote blessing that is pronounced on Reuben. And the reason I quote-unquote it is because it's not really a blessing. It's sort of a time to get yours, you know, for your behavior situation. So take notice of verse 3 as I read it. It says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And, and you know, you, you can almost read in the words the disbelief in the heart of Israel as he's speaking to Reuben, and he's saying, you went up to my, my couch. He went up to my couch. Like he turns to everybody like, what kind of a person is this uh, that does this? And so uh, the, blessing, he, the blessing is taken, or the, the right of the firstborn at that point is taken from Reuben. And if you go back to chapter 48, just a chapter earlier, we see that it had previously been given already to Joseph. So look at chapter 48, verse 15. It says, and he, that is Israel, Bless Joseph. And he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all of my life long to this day, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, uh, as I said, we'll spend more time looking at this tonight with Joseph, but just to give you the kind of the quick look, you have this situation where Joseph is taken captive into the land of Egypt. As far as Israel is concerned, Joseph has been killed. That's what his older brothers had said, that he was mauled by an animal and that he's dead. And so jo uh, Israel there, also known as Jacob, is in mourning over his son. He's lost his son. But then through circumstances, he's reunited with his son. He's not dead, he's alive. And he's reigning in the land of Egypt. And not only does he get to see his son again, but he got to see the offspring of his son. Two boys by the name of Ephraim, and Manasseh. Now Ephraim and Manasseh at this time that they're called to Joseph, excuse me, called to Jacob, uh, and he's going to lay his hands on them and he's going to bless them. They're no more than seven years of age. One of them at the most can be seven because they are the, the offspring of Joseph's relationship uh, with his new wife there, uh, the daughter of uh, Potiphera, I believe her name is. Uh, and so they, these are young kids. And they're being brought in, and if you look carefully at these words here, what he is saying to them is, you're, you may have more kids later on, but these two kids are mine, as far as inheritance is concerned. And so Joseph, who is one of the twelve, is going to be kind of pulled out of the equation, and in Joseph's place will be two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they are called the half-tribes of Israel. So half and half equals one, and that replaces Joseph as the twelve. But in pronouncing this quote-unquote blessing upon Reuben, let's take notice of a couple of things. He calls him unstable. He says, you are unstable as water. And it's important to note first 
because I think a lot of us are unstable as water, aren't we? Totally committed. Think of Peter in the scriptures. Totally committed to the Lord. He wasn't just, you know, tooting off uh, hot air or something. When he said, everyone else may deny you, but I won't deny you. I will be there. He meant that with all of his heart. I have no doubt. And yet when the circumstances came and the storms blew, he was shaken and he fell. And so all of us, I'm sure at times, we would classify ourselves as unstable as water. But here, Reuben is called unstable. So it's important to take note that Reuben is still receiving an inheritance. It's not as if God cast him off completely or his father cast him off completely. But because of his instability, he is going to forfeit much of what God intended for him. So he will no longer receive the double portion of the land. He forfeited that. He will no longer be the spiritual leader of the tribes of Israel. He forfeited that as well. And why? Because he was overcome by his lust. And he gave in to his sin. And it cost him. Now, all of us are going to be drawn aside by certain things. All of us are going to be impacted by things that our hearts are lusting after, that are desiring after. And so here you are, you're trying to live this walk, and all of a sudden, this thought comes into your mind, or this idea comes into your mind. And some of us think, what kind of a horrible person am I? The Scripture teaches us that those things are going to come, those fiery darts from the enemy. The, I, the point is, what do you do with that? I think of Cain in the book of Genesis chapter 4, where Cain is angry with his brother. And the Lord comes and he speaks to Cain, and he says, what's the matter? He says, if you do right, won't you be accepted? Or whatever he says but here's the problem sin is crouching out at your door and its desire is to master you but you must overcome it you see and i think that's the, what it is for all of us as we seek to walk with christ sin is crouching at our door sin makes its way into our house from time to time and it's hiding behind you know the furniture and satan there as he is trying to work he's trying to trip us up but here uh, we see we don't have to give in to our sin reuben did he let the lust master him he gave into it and i suspect he probably said something to the effect of well i'll deal with the consequences later no big deal it's a tremendous deal and too often we give in to sin and we say i'll deal with the consequences later but i don't think we really understand the consequences that we have to deal with later i think if it was all laid out for us and we put it there in front of us none of us would choose sin when we see the deadliness of the consequences on us and those that come after us. Reuben gave in to his lust. The wind sort of blew hard against him, and his foundation, the building of his life, if you will, was rocked, and it fell over, and it collapsed. He did not have a solid foundation, and the same thing happens to each one of us if we don't have a secure footing. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, and he does them, will be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. Let me go back and draw your attention to a couple of words in that verse. It says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. So what will be the source of your stability what will be the strength that establishes a foundation that regardless of the temptations and the lust and the attacks that come against you, that you will be able to stand in the midst of them? It's the knowing and the applying of the Word of God. And Jesus here is speaking to us saying that is what 
That is the foundation that each one of us needs. You know, as we study the Scriptures, we learn from the Scripture that Satan's desire, his chief desire, as our adversary, is to trip us up. He wants to see us fall. We're moving along, everything is great, and he wants to come against us so that we fall and our progress with the Lord uh, is, is ceases from moving forward. That's what we learn from the Scripture. What we learn from experience, what I've learned from experience, is that Satan is very patient, he's very intelligent, and he will take his time with each one of us. And he will come at us from this angle, and if the foundation doesn't fall, he'll go to a different angle, and maybe when we're not expecting, he'll come at us again, and if it doesn't knock us down, he'll go to another angle, and so on. He's going to come at us again and again and again. Now you hear that, and you might be like, well, then what's the use? Why not just give in? Because he does not have the omnipotent power to knock you down. He will keep coming at you, but if your set foundation is strong and it is solid, you will not fall. And I want to encourage you, our only hope in being strongly planted is to be rooted upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ so that both our foundation and our footing is sure. And we can increase that root, if you will. We go deeper as a foundation as we find him in his word. And we put it into practice and we obey. Now, as we go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, we move now to verse 11. And in verse 11, we are introduced to the next uh, tribe. And this is the tribe of Gad. And if you look at the first verse, uh, that is verse 11, what you'll read, it says, Now the sons of Gad lived over against them in the land of Bashan as far as Salika. And it goes on and it, it lists a bunch of names. I'm going to skip those names for a moment here. I'd encourage you to go back and read it. But if we would throw up slide 10, what you'll notice is these, this is where the tribes of Gad began to settle, located just to the north there uh, of Reuben. If you look at verse 17, which I didn't read, but we'll go and read it now, it says, Now all of these were recorded in genealogies in the days of Jotham, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, king of Israel. Now remember, after the reign of Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two nations. There were the northern tribes called Israel. There were the southern tribes called Judah, each with their own separate king. Two of those kings' names are mentioned here. The first is Jotham, king of Judah. And Jotham, the king of Judah, who ruled roughly around 750 B.C., he took a census, he took um, sort of an inventory of where the people were living in his day, and that was recorded for us. And Ezra is relying on that record and presenting it to us. The other king is this fellow by the name of Jeroboam, who was the king of Israel. And he ruled roughly around 925 B.C. And he too took a census of the tribes, and he recorded it, and Ezra is relying on it. So that's the meaning of verse 17 in those instances there. Take notice of verse 20. It says, Now when they prevailed over them, the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hands, for they cried out to God in the battle, and he granted their urgent plea because they trusted in him. That's a good idea. Tracy Tennant, she, she would say it's a brilliant idea that when you are in the midst of the battle, to cry out to the Lord with your urgent plea and to know that the Lord will hear you with that. Great idea. The only suggestion that I would make to the Gadites and to myself is I have a tendency to cry out to the Lord with my urgent pleas. But Paul teaches us that we do not need to wait until our pleas are urgent to cry out to the Lord, but that we are to bring everything before the Lord. So we learn this in Philippians chapter 4. It says, don't be anxious about anything. No need for an urgent plea. 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So when things are great, when things are difficult, when things are a real challenge, we need to learn the habit of constantly being in communication with the Lord and constantly coming to Him through prayer. Not waiting for circumstances to get so bad that it has to become this urgent plea. Well, the Gadites, they called unto the Lord and He heard them and He delivered them because they trusted Him. Now, if we continue moving on in 1 Chronicles 5, we come to verse 23, and it says, Now these are the members of the half-tribe of Manasseh. So again, remember, Manasseh is one of the two children of Joseph. Joseph is taken out of the list of the tribes of Israel, if you will, and his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are put in his place. They're each going to get uh, a full portion of land, just like uh, Reuben did, or Judah did, or who, Simeonite did, or Simeon did, and so on. But these are considered the half-tribes, thus keeping the number at 12. And it says in our passage here, it says, Now the members of the half-tribe of Manasseh, they lived in the land. They were very numerous, from Bashan to Baal Hermon, Sinir, and Mount Hermon. These were the heads of their father's houses, Ephraim, Ishi, Eliel, Azrael, and Jeremiah, Hodaviah and Jadael, mighty warriors, famous men, heads of their father's houses. But the Manassites broke faith with the God of their fathers, and they whored after the gods of the peoples of the land, whom God had destroyed from before them. And so the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he brought them to Halahabor, Harah, and the river Gozan to this day. And so we, we read it. This is very sad, actually. It says sort of a, like, are we allowed to say that word in church? It says that they hoard after uh, the gods of their father. Uh, they hoard after the gods of the peoples of the land. And this is the idea of idolatry. And in the scripture, that idolatry is um, made equivalent with spiritual adultery. That rather than remaining in right relationship with their husband or their wife, that they went after another woman or they went after another man. They committed adultery. And here, these, uh, Gad these Manassites, and then we also read the Reubenites and the Gadites, they hoard after the foreign gods of the land. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. And you see, the penalty of that was that the Assyrians came in and they conquered and they cap captured these three tribes. The Assyrian captivity begins in 722 B.C. And Syria today is just located to the north of Israel. That's ultimately where the Assyrian Empire was. And they made their way down into Israel and they took away captive many of the, tribes, or many of the people of the northern tribes. It began with the Gadites. It began with the Manassites and it began with the Reubenites. I find this to be quite interesting, and I think there's a valuable lesson for us here that we want to take away and end today with. You remember, perhaps you remember, in the closing uh, pages of Moses' writings, I forget if it's the end of Numbers or the end of Deuteronomy, but in the closing days of Moses' life, he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They crossed over that Red Sea. They began to march around through the wilderness. They made their way up around the east side of the nation of Israel. So today, if you remember your map, they were in the land of Jordan. In those days, it was called the land of Moab. And they sort of get to the edge of that land, and Reuben, Manasseh, and well, Reuben and the Gadites, they come, 
And they basically, they look around this land. This isn't the promised land yet. They're still in the foreign land. The promised land is across the river that they've been journeying to for 40 years. And they get to this land and they essentially say, this is good enough. We've come as far as we want to go in our journey of faith. We're content to stay right here. And so they go to Moses and they say, hey, if it's okay with you, we would just like to stay here. And Moses misunderstands the circumstance. They say, oh, no, you don't. You're coming into the promised land with us, and you're going to fight, and you're going to make sure that this land is free for all of your brothers, the rest of the tribes of Israel. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we're not saying we're afraid to go fight. We'll go fight with them, but we want to set up some sheep pens here so that we can return to this land after the battle is won. And so Moses is like, all right, if that's what you want to do. And they settle for this particular land. It's also interesting that it was these three tribes that are the first to go into captivity. You see, God had promised the children of Israel a land of promise. But what these three tribes were essentially saying is, this foreign land with these foreign gods and these foreign people is good enough for us. That compromise, that settling for less than all God would have for them, proved to be very costly, just like we saw with Reuben, who compromised with his father's uh, handmaiden. As a follower of Christ, we need to be careful that we do not settle and that we do not compromise for less than all that God has for us. What does God have for us as far as the discipline of prayer is concerned? Well, God says, you know, I want to meet with you in the intimacy of the quiet place. But the vast majority, we say to God with our actions, if not our words, we say, no thanks. I'll just offer up quick prayers before dinner or bedtime and I'll use the rest of my time for TV or Facebook or fishing or, or something like that. No, thank you, God. God says, I want to give you victory over sin. He says, I want you to experience the freedom from that habitual sin that has chained you and kept you from moving forward in leaps and bounds. And many of us, we say, no, no thanks. I don't mind the chain. I've been dragging it around long enough. I've sort of become used to it. This place that I'm chained to has sort of become my home. I'm content here. And there God says, but I have so much more for you. With fellowship, God says, you know, I want you to experience the sweetness of fellowship. I want you to know the unity of the Holy Spirit that is meant for all believers. And many of us, our response to that is, no, thank you. Opening myself up like that can become messy. You know, I'm content here to be off on my own and doing my own thing. God has so much more for all of us. And so many times we come to the edge of the Jordan and the Lord, like the Simeonites, the Lord reveals on the other side of the invisible fence, so to speak, I have all of that for you. And I want you to go in to possess it. And we come to the place where we have to say, yes, I will take what you have for me, Lord, and I'll journey forward. Or no, I'm content and I'll stay right here. He has so much more for us. The Apostle Peter exhorted his readers. He said this, he said, set aside Christ in your hearts as Lord. And I think as believers today, 21st century, we would do well to heed those instructions because anything less than the Lordship of Christ over every area of our lives is settling for less than God has for us. And it's a compromise because God would have so much more for us. For the unbeliever, you're here, you're trying to figure out, you know, what's this all about? My friend invited me here. It all starts with the relationship with Christ. I could be a good person. 
I'll just, you know, I mean, I'll start going to church. I'll be a nice people, a nice person, meet nice people. So much more. You're at the edge of the fence, so to speak, looking out. And it begins with at the foot of the cross, ultimately. And it begins with the relationship with Christ. Confessing your need for a Savior. Confessing that there is a holy God that seeks to wash you and to cleanse you. And He does that only through the person of Christ. If you've never given your life to Christ and you've never experienced forgiveness for your sin, I'd encourage you to do that today. You are not promised that you will have a tomorrow. Don't put it off. Let's go before the Lord.